Hello and welcome back to Bending Boundaries. I'm Megan. I'm Saren. And I'm Ebru. Hi everyone. Hi to the listeners. Um, I, yeah, I think the last time we recorded was in May <laughs> and now it's October. So um, yeah. How have you guys been? Like what have you been up to? Well, it's been the summer, which is a bit of a weird time mm-hmm. in during PhD. Uh, the university sort of closes down. Mm-hmm. Um, all the students go away, but the work doesn't really stop. Yeah. Um, which I think some people think it does. <laughs> um, but when you're doing PhD, it's quite different. So you're still just carrying on doing your thing. There's lots of conferences to go to. Yeah. How how has your summer been, Ibru? Yeah, I think, um, you know, initially I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, summer, good weather, and let me take a little break. But then you actually, as you say, you realize, okay, you know, unless we take a break, like our annual leave as PhD students, there is not really a break. Mm -hmm. So the university slowed down, but I was still coming onto campus because I had um, a couple conferences, one in South Africa was a gender work organization conference and one at the University of Sussex. and then I went to like a qualitative methods training in Capri, which okay. felt, <laughs> it felt like a holiday because that place is just, it's something else. It's beyond words. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was nice. It's like, you know, this kind of riding retreat that you can like go to if you have funds and you have this wild scenery. And yeah, but I feel like how is summer already over and it's raining again? That is my main question. Like, did we even have a summer in the UK? <laughs> I, I feel like there wasn't one. Like, it was pretty terrible. I mean, I, um, as my co-hosts know, I broke my ankle in May. No, in June. So mm-hmm. I had like a little, my summer was very sitting in the house watching Suits <laughs> and just like <laughs> staring at the TV. Um, but I was looking at the window a lot and it was raining. And I was like, okay, at least I'm not missing good weather <laughs> yeah. um but yeah your conferences and events abroad like oh I aspire to that I feel like I need to leave the country for academic reasons <laughs> yeah it looked amazing mm-hmm. I was seeing all these photos on your Instagram and I was thinking wow you're doing some work but you're also somewhere very nice that is the, the goal mm-hmm. am I though am I <laughs> <laughs> Well, you look like you were doing work. <laughs> yeah. You had like little Instagram stories of you like typing. Yeah. So I, thought, I know, great. I know. I love those. I'm like, you know, with my long nails, let me do some academic ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what do we want to talk about in this episode? So we're back with season two of Bending Boundaries and super excited about all of our listeners. Yeah, so we wanted to um, reintroduce the listeners or start again and, and kind of talk about, so the aim of Bending Boundaries is basically to encourage more diversity within PhDs. Um, and so we thought we'd start the first episode with like talking about what we think could actually encourage more diversity within PhDs. Because I think last um, last season or whatever, where we were talking a lot of people who were from diverse backgrounds doing them, but it's like, what about the new people coming through? Like, what how could we encourage them? Um, yeah, so I guess we'll start the discussion um, in a second.
So we thought we would start the episode with um, defining diversity within PhDs as the word, the, con- the word or concept of diversity. I don't know. It's been skewed. It's used so much that it's almost lost its meaning. <laughs> um, so I thought we could see what we think or how we would describe diversity within PhDs. So what do you guys think? Ibra, do you have a definition? So, yeah, I was thinking about this and actually talking about this with a colleague because both of our research revolves around equity, diversity and inclusion. But unfortunately, I feel like it has almost come to a point where it's become a buzzword. And I think especially, you know, having like a PhD led podcast, like Bending Boundaries, when it comes to diversity, I think it's so important to you know, deconstruct that term maybe, and everyone will have a different meaning attached to it, a different association. But I think for me, it's, of course, it's about the inclusion of all kinds of different individuals um, from different backgrounds, sexual identities, um, gender identities, um, you know, different, um, like, demographic diversity, for example, PhD students that are from different races and ethnicities. But I think something that um something that sticks out to me is especially because of some episodes we've had in this podcast is like educational pathway diversity I'm always interested in seeing where do people actually come from Mm. because you Megan for example you were in industry yeah or you came into the PhD right and um And I also, I worked as a teacher a lot, like my way has not been linear. It's not been like bachelor's, master's, and then the PhD. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes people may be overwhelmed perhaps with the thought of doing a PhD because they're like, but I didn't do it perhaps the conventional way or the right way. And so I think maybe in this episode, we can talk about educational pathway diversity, what pathways have people taken to be in the PhD today? What is actually possible? What are the advantages of coming from all different kinds of directions? And so I think, you know, with especially our podcast, yes, we have to encourage socioeconomic diversity, people from different classes, working classes to enter academia. Yeah, um, I do think it's yeah, I'm just very curious to like hear what you have to say because we've all had different experiences. Darren, do you have any like concepts of diversity? Um, I don't really know. I think Ibu is really right. Like it's something that we should talk about what we actually mean when we say it more. I think when I think about diversity, I just think, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't really have anything to say please cut this yeah but the the thing is it's like I feel like sometimes especially like as we're all from like different backgrounds and all this stuff it's like you walk into the room it's like I am diversity (laughs) like it's like me it seems to be me that is the thing (laughs) of what they mean and I'm like that doesn't that feels odd and it's not just uh I think when you like talk about demographics like which is which is important I kind of like I'm on the thing of like oh yeah everything's not everything should be measured but like it is something that people should be aware of um but then at the same time it's like you end up being the face of something when you're just trying to be a student so you're like oh my god like mm. just, I don't know you get mm-hmm. asked to do stuff and you're like are you asking everyone to do that or is it just me or like, do you want me to be on the I don't know it feels mm. I, I don't want to say it's it, 
it's it's a spotlight I think when diversity is highlighted then if you come from a background that's not common you are also highlighted and mm. that's a yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. it becomes more work for you then as well mm-hmm. I think I often feel like when um I often feel like what some people might see as diversity for myself at least I often feel like people see my difference as like and it's probably my own projection but like a cause of anxiety for them or like a problem Mm. (laughs) when I sort of walk into a room rather than like uh, I don't know it feels like it's often just a source of discomfort rather than like something Mm -hmm. to be celebrated yeah I don't really know what I'm saying yeah (laughs) no I I get what you mean I think I mean you know the way I interpret what you're saying is um you know, you step into this academic environment, you stick out, um, you know, for maybe several reasons. Like in my case, I'm, you know, a person of color, a woman of color. So, and I choose to present in certain ways. Um, And then it's almost like, am I being regarded as a problem or is it me who has internalized that? And I'm trying to accommodate people. I'm trying to make people around me comfortable or I'm trying to be less visible. But like, why is that, right? We, we should not try to make ourselves less visible when we want to especially increase diversity in PhD programs. So I think it's, maybe it's also something about academia in itself and the structures of academia. Yeah, and I, I think there's also, sorry, to speak about like the types of diversity, like I think there's also diversity in the type of research you're doing as well, which is like, um, I think it's, it's good to have diversity in general or diversity, different kinds of people doing research. But if the person is doing a research project that's, I don't know, reproducing some horrible ideas, just because they're from a diverse uh, air quotes background, doesn't that doesn't push things forward. But then, so the research ideas that people kind of cover and do, like also is kind of diversifying academia in general, because it's like, then there's more ways of thinking in their different methods and everything like that as well that is part of it it's such a good point like disciplinary diversity like people doing different kinds of methodologies right like all three of us and maybe we can talk about this in a little bit we have different methodologies like um siren you did field work um and megan you were thinking about last we talked i remember walking interviews yeah yeah with the participants and interview them it's the first time I heard that and you know I'm learning so much by talking to people not only from different departments but different disciplines and I feel like it's it can really encourage you to kind of maybe broaden your own methodology or the way you approach research so I think there's so many things to that but something else because the other day the new students came there was an induction meeting and I was talking about um mental health I was talking about our podcast actually that we have like an equity focused podcast and when I was talking about mental health I had this one slide that um I think it's a big debate right now you know speaking about neurodiversity in academia but also I think lots of people still have like um a certain stigma attached to the term disability because you know it's there's not just one disability like it looks so different there's visible ones invisible disabilities 
um, it's such an big spectrum, but one thing is it's not a taboo word. And also, you know, for example, racial difference should not be a taboo word, but still I feel like certain terms when it comes to diversity are still very much stigmatized. Mm. Yeah, and I think that kind of helps us go on to like, well, well, there's one thing to highlight, I guess, is like, what is the diversity within PhDs at the moment? Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I know the, the well, from 2019, I know like the black statistics, <laughs> like I remember it was like, there's 20,000 PhD students and then it's like 200 are black and then only like 30 are like black caribbean which is like my black background and mm. also there's like a big chunk of people who are like international students like that's where a lot of the diversity comes from as well so it's like homegrown I, uh, that sounds weird i don't like but you know like the british education system is not bringing people through all the way through but like so we're relying on like diversity from other countries um which is yeah Mm. kind of like an interesting way that kind of seems to be um but yeah I I don't know if you know any other like facts about diversity but I think from my personal experience it's like oh okay there's not many there are there is people of different races that I'm seeing but it's not a lot especially if you go into different spaces like if you're in like a conference or a mm-hmm. yeah there might be different students but in like certain spaces it's like oh it doesn't seem to be translating to everywhere yeah what do you think Saren? yeah I mean I don't know guys I don't yeah. know what's my brain today I think that that's just an example of like how it's a bit broad and vague <laughs> like it's like but I think one thought I had and this is not to interrupt you Saren but um to what (laughs) Megan was saying that the spaces are still primarily showcasing one particular group or you have one specific dominant group in the room and I think it's because I mean there's still quite a few barriers to diversity, especially at the level of academia when it's the PhD level. Yeah. I think there is kind of a lack of targeted support because yes, we have a lot of international PhD students. I'm one of them. We had our previous episode on the international student experience. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you. There is diversity, but how diverse is this diversity? And also I think can we use the term diversity and inclusion in one sentence or is it a whole paradox? I've been grappling with the thought for so long. Um, This is kind of my puzzle because we have so much diversity, but how are we making these individuals in academia at the PhD level feel included? Mm -hmm. Or undergraduates, how how do we make it, how can we design like, or redesign academia in a way where it encourages people to feel included at the PhD level. Hey, there is room for me for someone who thinks like me, who has methodologies like me, who looks like me, you know, those kind of things. I think it's a question. Yeah, so I guess like that kind of takes us nicely onto like, what do we think are the, how, or I don't know if it's like, what do we think are the barriers or how do we encourage more diversity? I guess that's the same kind of question, like, or two sides of the same coin like any thoughts on like how to encu- 
Well, I don't know. Like, is it worth us talking about what encouraged us? Actually, do we feel like we are diversity? Like when you like, <laughs> I don't know if this sounds weird, but you know, it's like, I guess on paper, yes, we all are. But do you feel like that's, you? I don't know. Do you feel like that is part of your PhD story? Does that, yeah. Yeah, I, no, I it does make sense. I, I probably, probably not. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like not through through any choice of my own mm. do you know what I mean it's not really what my PhD is about it's yeah. about something quite different mm-hmm. <laughs> not quite sure what right at the minute but it's not about that like mm-hmm. um but I guess that's also the thing with what you were sort of saying before Megan about di- the idea of diversity is often in some ways sort of forced upon you isn't it mm-hmm. if you sort of fit a certain criteria yeah and i think there is so correct me if i'm wrong this is also it's going to be very distinct um you know like i had my i did my masters in sweden and then i did my bachelor's in germany and part of it in ireland but all of these countries i've been exposed to i haven't really been exposed to academic life mm-hmm. like, what does that even look like? Until a couple of years ago, and I'm going to be super honest, you know, I come very much from a working class background. I did not even know what PhD stood for. Mm. I didn't know it meant doctor of philosophy. And maybe this resonates with some of our listeners or even like your own experiences of entering academia. But I think one thing I would have really benefited from or that academia would benefit from is encourage so first of all offer perhaps seminars for um that involves talks with current phd students um that involves experiences with their supervisors to kind of offer maybe a more realistic perspective of what does the phd stand for what are the possibilities after how was the program structured what does the life of a phd student look like because i feel like oftentimes especially in like contemporary movies or something. It's like the notion is being romanticized in like the show Criminal Minds. There's- Okay. <laughs> Sorry. In the, I know this is taking a maybe- No, a, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm, but I'm in Criminal you. Minds, there is this one person who, is he a forensic scientist or something? But all of a the sudden this one episode, it's like, I'm 28 years old and I have two PhDs. <laughs> and I very like romanticized thing of oh wow he's so smart but you know what does that even mean yeah. um, I think I didn't have any perspective not a realistic perspective there was just no um well no informative sessions when I was an undergrad and um so then you can't really navigate a transition to a doctoral program because yeah. you that that is a possibility yeah yeah so it's like a bit of clarity about like what it is and stuff like that like yeah it's it's, it's an interesting one because I feel like um with my research and either with yours as well it's like it's quite it's related to, like to diversifying stuff and I think well my degree was in sociology I think I feel like you were social science as well and it's like that is a very a subject that is quite I mean sometimes they completely skip over race and gender and everything but like it is um it's kind of built into the subject that there is like you can go down a path which is looking at stuff that's to do with like 
diverse characteristics and stuff like that. I feel like I'm diverse too much, but I feel like that is how it kind of linked a little bit. And also, I guess when I was doing, when I got into academia a bit, like doing my masters and stuff, it was like, oh, like I like writing and thinking about these things like deep, more deeply. And I always, I also find like theories, like like feminist theories, other theories like that, it's like they help me understand the world or understand my experiences. So that's kind of like how I feel like the academic world kind of in, intrigued me and <laughs> attracted me. Like, even though I wasn't always like, I'll do a PhD, but it was definitely like, oh, I like the way that this organization or I like the stuff that can be involved in this, which is probably quite a limited idea of academia, but it is like a, a good part of it, definitely. <laughs> so that was mm. like something where I think my identity kind of linked in with my path this way. Mm. Yeah, I totally relate to that as well. I mean, my research is about diversity in a way. Like, it, I feel like all social research sort of is. It, mm. I don't know. I think if you're aware, if you have an awareness, basically, of sort of power dynamics and mm. sort of inequity, then it sort of ine- inevitably is like my research is so much about like accessibility to and access to certain things and what stops certain people from being able to get things and others from being able to get it. But it's it's like you were saying, I think that one of the things that inspired me most and made me most interested in academia is definitely the way that enables you to think and like develop your thinking about your place in the world and others' places in the world and and how people move through it. Um, particularly in terms of like power but I just wanted to say because I was thinking about what you were both saying then about um, I've started teaching for the first time this week and I've been reflecting quite a lot just before the lessons on how overwhelming university is for like for everyone but Mm. for like when it's your first year in in higher like higher education I think for like loads of different reasons like whether you like have gone through British education system or not like whether you've come from like a working class background or not like I think there's loads of different reasons why it's like a completely alien system and I spent so like quite a lot of time in the first classes I took just like explaining what a tutorial is and why that's different from a lecture or a seminar and like what the goals of that are and also one of my friends was talking about something I found really interesting about how in academia there are hidden skills and there are things that you're not really ever taught unless you've come from a sort of background where you were already taught those like how to read like how to read in an academic way I don't think I know how to do that Mm. and you know I'm three years into a PhD and there's so many like little things like that that I think can make your life so much easier if you've had access to them yeah that's such a good point, like how to read in an academic way, but also what makes an academic, what makes an intellectual, right? It's something I'm still asking myself being in my, like just started in my third year. And I feel like so many big names are being dropped on you from the very beginning of your studies, um, you know, depending on what you study, but like coming from like anthropology, sociology, you hear of um, Kimberly Crenshaw, let's talk intersectionality, you know, you hear of um, 
Sarah Ahmed. Um, but I always feel like maybe it would humanize um, the, the transition to a PhD if something like drop-in sessions were offered for undergraduates, you know, kind of like, okay, there's different, like, where can I get a job? What do I want to do? What is my passion? And I think sometimes I think the passion part kind of gets um, not overwhelming resonance because I think also we are as a society very focused on what job will, will give me money. And I think one thing that, you know, I've realized early on, if you have a passion for research and writing, you're not going to go into the PhD. You're not going to step into that role thinking you're going to make so much money. Mm. It's a lot more about the passion for learning, but, um, and researching and maybe leaving some kind of imprint on someone's life. Um, but yeah, just going back to the question, how to read academically, I think what we do need is kind of maybe a lot more support, targeted support when it comes to um, raising awareness on the nature of academic life. Because it's not easy. I think we can all agree on that. There's lots of difficult moments um, and you know internalized apprehensions and these moments where you wonder, am I good enough for this? Mm. yeah and yeah I think it's there's definitely like an informational aspect of like just explaining what things are and how it works because I I like applying for a PhD I found oh okay let's be specific I guess is a probably good thing it's like there's the application process which I think is confusing mm -hmm. and it's intimidating as well because okay there's to summarize this like you can contact a supervisor with an idea and then develop it with them and like for me, it was like apply for the PhD program, but then apply for funding. And those are two different things, which I didn't really know about. But like my supervisors helped me. But it was like, oh, my potential supervisors. So I did it with three different people. <laughs> but it was like really, I was out of academia. So I didn't actually know anyone. So I just had to kind of try and find someone that would be interested in the same thing and then do it. And I think when you're outside of academia or even inside academia, it feels intimidating to email someone to be like, hi, do you want to like look after me for three years <laughs> or whatever? Because also we don't really know what supervision is. It's just like, you have to have someone to kind of sponsor slash help you, I guess is it. Yeah. But I think just being clear that that, that is it's very normal to email them. They're used to people emailing them. And if they say no, that's like completely nothing, probably not much to do with your topic or you. It's just like a, timing like they can only supervise so many people at a time and stuff like that like I don't even I can't even think of like a normal world example of that where you have to email someone to ask them to help you <laughs> like that. Mm. um it's weird isn't it and it takes so much like courage and confidence that yeah. I think is just completely I don't know that is inherent in that even that first step that is so terrifying mm. like I think the only reason I felt able to do it is because I was living, I'd recently moved in with someone who was doing a PhD and they were like, yeah, you've just got to cold email people. And I was like, I'm sorry, like, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll all hate me, like, or they'll just never reply. And they were like, some of them won't reply, but some of them probably will. Um, yeah. It's so weird. It's such a bizarre process. But that's the, yeah. No, I was just going to say, but that's the, the advice. Just mm -hmm. feel free to email people. It's okay. And if they don't respond, 
that doesn't reflect it's not a reflection on you mm-hmm. um yeah sorry Ibru, what you can say I was just gonna say if I could go back you know while I was rewriting and rewriting over and over my proposals tailoring it at different institutions and their different expectations which is one thing be prepared <laughs> to do it. I think all of us have like multiple multiple versions of our PhD proposals but one thing I wish I could tell myself it's it's so normal to feel so uncomfortable and out of your skin. The mm-hmm. whole emailing process and Saren, what you're saying about this notion of, oh God, people are going to hate me. Like I'm intruding on their time. They don't even know me. But again, these people had to start somewhere. But it's so easy for me to say that three years in, rationalize the process from my current perspective, but temporality plays such an important role because back then, you are doing your master's or you did your master's, you're in industry, you kind of still, you know, are unfamiliar with the PhD journey in itself. But I think one thing I'm learning is, and this is not going to sound super motivating, but to really get comfortable with being uncomfortable in academia. Because at every stage, I feel like you're still learning about what you're doing and you're, you're still learning about what you're reading or where you're going. Um, But what I, you know, Megan, you were talking about like the application process and the application process for the funding being two different things. Mm. That's such an important point. And something else is that for a long time, I think because we are so accustomed to like functioning in a meritocratic society is like good grades are everything. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, especially when you start preparing for the PhD interview, that's when I was thinking, okay, like I can be as good as I want on paper in my master's, but you need to have some kind of interpersonal skills Mm -hmm. because especially now I'm realizing going to conferences, networking for me personally is super hard. Walking up to strangers, people that I'm referencing in my papers, but then like, hi, I'm Ibru. My research is about X, Y, Z. How are you? If people don't want to talk to you, they're like, hi, I'm good. Walk away. If people want to talk to you, they will. But the point of networking, getting to that point where you become uncomfortable, you kind of shed your skin and you really just try to, because that's the whole part of the game, right? And I think that's not something we are necessarily taught Again, grades are one thing, but interpersonal skills, which is also required to build a functioning supervisor relationship, because that's the most important relationship throughout your PhD. Those are skills. I think we don't really consider skills at some point. So mm-hmm. I don't know how how do you feel about that? Because it also comes with being adaptable to certain new environments and situations and I'm still working on these kind of skills and it's hard. Yeah, which is, it's funny, like, like the way because we're just talking about it all at the same time. It's like, oh, it starts with networking. You have to just ask people. It mm. starts, starts with identifying people who um you who you, you think would work. Like ob- mm. ob- you can also like go for people that you've like, su- your PhD, your, sorry, dissertation supervisors or people you've worked with before. But I think also like the interpersonal skills, it's like, your relationship with your supervisor doesn't have to be it depends on who they are but you can it's a it's a collaboration in discussion and it goes from collaboration to 
you are actually more in charge of your project than they are but it is like you work with them not for them but then mm-hmm. in the word supervisor makes it confusing <laughs> so, like... that's such a good point like working with them instead of for them because I don't know how you feel Saren Megan I I kind of I'm still trying to deconstruct my internalized asymmetrical power position Mm -hmm. I'm like why do I see myself as the student I also think because the terminology is very confusing and we make sense by categorizing things so if my batch says student and actually you're teaching really important seminars you are an important functioning member of academia it just makes things really confusing you are in this liminal space you are not staff, but you don't really feel like a student, especially because you know somewhere you're supposed to work with your supervisors. Ideally, at some point, they're going to be your co-authors. Mm. You're not going to write for them. But I find it really difficult. And I think, again, this is another thing to maybe be um, raise awareness on to especially undergrads and people coming from industry who haven't been in academia for a long time, that... Um, this liminal space is going to leave you sometimes confused and maybe even anxious. But again, I think if we talked about this more or if there were more conversations in academia around this, people would feel more at ease. I know I felt more at ease at the beginning of my journey. And yeah, it's to normalize, like, it's hard to, I I don't want to say normalize discomfort, but normalize, like, um, setting your own or you're having to work it out how you work and how it's going to work yourself and like it is quite an individual process for PhD so working out what works for you I think is like a something I would say to people to do and I think also one thing I would say about during the application process I guess is like you can kind of set what your project's about it will definitely it will change and adapt but pick something that you think is interesting and if your supervisor also finds it interesting then it's a a worthwhile project so I don't know I think people like we were saying how like uh, academia and thinking can help you understand the world a bit like especially with so much stuff going on in the world all the time like it's all kind of (laughs) crazy it's like it is really valuable for someone to research it and there is so much stuff that has just not been researched properly either (laughs) because And being aware that your your interest or your drive is probably would be useful. And a lot of people mm. will find it helpful. Do you think it's necessary or important to have a research-driven master's before applying for a PhD? Well, I think it's... Oh, no, go on. No, I was, I was going to say, because I did a master's. So I had to, I've done, I've done two masters because I didn't do a research driven one the first time, even though I kind of knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I just didn't realize that I should have done that. So I would say to people, like, if you can find one that's got the research elements, because it is a requirement to do a PhD a lot of times. So even if you just want to do a master's in general, I would look for the research element because it'll save you a year, <laughs> which was my issue you said what were you gonna say Saren? yeah I was basically just gonna say it would save you probably time and money mm. <laughs> if you if you did obviously it's not necessary but like it will become necessary if you want to do a PhD so yeah and I think 
research driven, Saren? Sorry? Was your master's research driven? Yeah, well, I did a one plus three, which is for people who don't know is is a way of doing um it's like a funded way of doing a, a master's that leads straight into a phd um it um also means you don't have to pay to do the master's um they pay you to do the master's um which was really really intense because it's basically like doing a master's in research but at the same time doing the first year of your phd um so it's a lot of work and it's it's tough but um I think it it worked well for me and I think it works really well for some people and not for others like some people would benefit more from having sort of a break in between and just being able to focus on the masters and then think about PhD later. I think when we were talking about what this episode what we want to talk about a couple of weeks ago I was kind of just reflecting back like on my journey and I think I got to the point where I'm like, oh, who will want to have me as a PhD student? Because my master's was not research driven. Mm. I did not have, and money is a big other issue here, to do a second master's abroad. Because um, I was already working throughout the entire time and I just felt honestly very tired. Um, so perhaps I don't know how you feel about this but I was thinking maybe we can address the misconception that a research-led master's is definitely a prerequisite for a PhD yeah that's true yeah okay yeah yeah it's definitely so the question why I asked this is because at some points I really would have wished oh my gosh I really should have done a research-driven master's because there is terms here in my first year of the PhD I am not familiar with and other people are familiar with but it's actually you know because especially on like an ESRC stipend there is the possibility of because you mentioned the one plus three Saren which means the one year is kind of like a research focused year where you can have the opportunity to take different modules for qualitative quantitative research methods to kind of familiarize yourself with that and then, you know, the rest of the three years are more focused on the PhD. This is just a very simplified version. There's a lot more to this. But so I think like, so coming from my own perspective, it was really helpful to take those kind of, or that there is even the opportunity to take research-driven modules. Yes, it will extend the time of you doing a PhD. But um, I think it helped me coming from a different background because mm -hmm. project I have today there are so many anthropological sociological concepts in it and even concepts that you know kind of tackle health sciences so I think it has pro and cons not yeah. coming research driven masters but perhaps we can just put out there that that should not stop you from applying to a PhD because there's opportunities out there yeah yeah and I think I think you can I think your industry or work experience can also um help you like it's not it doesn't all have to be academic but I know that my kind of position as someone who had worked in policy making and stuff that made me a more attractive PhD student and I feel like it doesn't and that was a research job but like I don't think it has to be research like you could if you work in like healthcare or you know anything that that is similar or interest or like related to your research I think that makes you a lot more a more 
I don't want to say viable candidate, I guess. Um, mm. In terms of like practical things, so I wrote down a few ideas of like, how would you encourage people to get into PhDs? I mean, I would, I actually wouldn't say to anyone they should do it if they don't, well, if you don't have a scholarship, I feel like a scholarship is, or like funding is a really big thing. And I think I would say to people like, if you don't have funding, I feel like, you know, it's a really difficult situation. So I would like try and get a scholarship if you can or a f- uh, funding or um, yeah, I would, yeah, I'll stand by that. <laughs> it's, it's so, you should be paid to do this work because it is work. Yeah. Um, and then I would say like maybe doing like PhDs that are related to like social justice topics might encourage more diversity. Like people would want to engage in, I don't know, research projects that potentially could help people or are related to their identity or stuff like that. Mm, I think that's a really good point, especially as some like there are lots of times during the PhD where you're confronted with wondering what the point is and what you're doing or like why it matters so when I saw that you'd written about that Megan I thought yeah I think that's could be a huge incentive I think like having some sort of in like focus on social justice in my research has been a huge driver for keeping me interested in it and keeping Mm -hmm. me like focused on it yeah yeah and I think Mm, something definitely needs to change in academia. <laughs> Anything needs to change. But I feel like instead of only encouraging like a certain academic skill set, I think we should like mm, appreciate like the diversity of backgrounds more. Like as you mentioned, Megan, like coming from industry or just coming from a very different field than the department you're entering for the PhD. I think that should be encouraged more also for later um, cross-departmental and interdisciplinary research kind of, which social justice research is very interdisciplinary. Um, And I think also you need to have passion for questioning the world around you. I think that is something very important because Throughout the PhD journey, I think we've all had moments where, you know, moments of doubt, where I personally wondered, okay, will my research even make a difference? Mm -hmm. I think, especially when it comes to like, making a difference, leaving a sustainable um, impact, I think maybe we can think of it also as one person after a particular interview, like tells you, hey, this actually felt really good. It really helped me to reflect on some things. I think that's already kind of making a difference, but yeah. you know, we don't have to conceptualize it as this huge thing because it's being in academia is very different than finishing your bachelor's and going to industry and having a having a job. Those are two very different things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think like the job relationship is also a thing. I think one of my big motivations to doing a PhD is I want to work in a university and I want to be a lecturer. So, oh, I want to be like, I hate to say I want to be an academic, but I like the idea of like writing books about things, writing chapters about things, learning about stuff. Like I would like that to be my job. So um, in the future. So it's, I mean, the PhD is a, it's 
I'm interested in it and stuff, but it is a means to an end as well. Like I want to have those job opportunities and it is the way to get into those job opportunities. So I think being clear about that, like it's like, oh, if you see, you know, these when you see a job you would like to, you're like, oh, maybe I'd like to be a lecturer. Maybe I'd like to, you know, when you go to a panel and it's like, there's like smart people talking, it's like, oh, I'd like to do that. It's like, this is one of the routes to that. And it's not just in academia as well. Like um, I was kind of encouraging a friend, like she's interested in like health and um, black women's health and stuff like that. And I was like, well, if you do a PhD on that topic, um, one, you'll become a doctor and people will listen to you more. Two, you'll become someone who's like got expertise in that field. And that doesn't have to just go into academia. It's like you can be influencing lots of different things. And also, I think it gives you international um, opportunities as well, which is another thing I'm interested in. So it's like, I think clarifying the potential career trajectory yeah, um, is it, like a big, I think that would encourage more people um, to do it. Because I think there are really good opportunities. Um, you know, what do you guys think? No, I totally agree. And I think often when you don't really know much about a PhD, it's sort of seen as this like, sort of like very inaccessible thing where you sort of just sit in a room and write and like you have knowledge on this really niche topic and it's not really applicable to other things but it's actually like you were saying um I don't know it, like for like it's actually a very broadening experience it's not really narrowing down and I also think just what you were saying about making a difference Ebru like as well as the research itself being a way that we're often told we have to you know it's like a big focus on from funders and stuff like what impact is going to have I often think and also what you were saying Megan about like wanting to be a lecturer like I personally or like already and I always knew I would get so much joy out of like making a difference teaching as well and like making a difference for students and just knowing like I've already had a couple of experiences where I've with students where I've thought oh actually like them having a a you know a teacher who's trans that's like already having that's already had an impact you know and Mm. that's already like making a difference for those people because they've been able to ask things they might not have been able to ask before or you know and I think that as well for people who you know come from underrepresented backgrounds could is a huge way of making a difference for you know younger people coming up as well Mm. I mean representation in academia, research, and the curriculum, those are so many things that are so big right now. Like, you know, we have the whole debate on um, decolonizing the reading lists that universities hand out. And, um, but that's a really, really beautiful point, Sarah, like being, in your case, a trans teacher and kind of leaving, leaving that kind of imprint and people can take whatever they want to take from that. But I think um, also for for young people to be seen or to felt seen um, is so crucial. And I think sometimes, you know, I often wonder what makes even a contribution? Everyone has such a different perception of that, but it can be teaching. And I think maybe in a later episode, we can talk about like the internal hierarchies between you know, researching and teaching because it's mm. not regarded as equal and teaching is so, so essential, but still it's a, there's a very hierarchical notion of um, 
how much teaching and researching um, respectively matter and which one is better in quotation marks, which mm -hmm. I, I disagree with, but there is this discussion out there. I have one which is having clear boundaries about where you're willing to live as well. Because I think a big thing that makes the PhD difficult is like having to move away and do stuff. Like I wouldn't say you shouldn't do it because I've done it. I think we've all done it. So like it's not the worst thing. But I think that it does have a huge impact on how you're feeling and your experience. So just be careful about where you want to live and like don't, I don't know, have boundaries about it. Like if you don't want to move, then don't move. Like it's just, I would say. I don't know if you guys agree, but I think there's certain things you should not compromise on. And mm. one of the things you definitely don't have to compromise on is your mental health. Mm. So if certain places don't make you feel good in your mind and body, there is no one forcing you to go there. And maybe that's also, again, very simplistic put, because oftentimes we feel like we don't have another choice. This is the place that offers me funding. Mm. And again, this leads us back to the whole conversation of, for universities to provide more accessible resources and financial aid because you know i feel like there's a huge disparity on what phd students for example get covered let's say in italy versus maybe you know in the uk or sweden like just for example i went to um the the summer methods training in italy and most italian students get covered their food mm they buy outside and that was something I'm really not I wasn't familiar with I didn't yeah. know about so you know maybe there is also room for improvement when it comes to accessible resources and further support mm. for both home and international students because especially when I'm thinking if I was born and raised in the UK I'm paying for my bachelor's I'm paying for my master's I can't find a scholarship for a PhD, I really want to do one. What do I do? I will take out student loans because I'm mm. determined to a PhD. But that is really not an ideal situation. You know, already maybe have your parents have debt or you have debt from paying your undergrad. So I do think when it comes to money, a lot of room for improvement. But the other thing I wanted to mention is maybe for universities to start a mentorship program. So perhaps when you're in your last year of your bachelor's or your master's, you know, you could be assigned some kind of mm, PhD buddy, an optional PhD buddy, if you wanted to know more about what does the everyday life of a PhD student look like. Mm. So maybe having that connection already, like facilitating that connection with PhD students yeah like just make it more less elusive and like more of just something that people can visualize basically yeah and encourage a dialogue mm. I feel like communication could solve so many of our anxieties yeah yeah but you're you know you won't necessarily reach out to someone you know as a PhD student because you just feel shy or you're introverted or there could be many other reasons mm. so maybe if somebody you know like uh the people on top academia facilitated those dialogues it would be a lot easier for people to get in touch at least to have the option to do so yeah yeah do you have any final thoughts Saren I think just I think just to use the like knowledge of other people if you have those people um 
one of the most helpful things for me when applying for PhD. As we've already talked about, it's extremely complicated and difficult to understand process unless you're already you're already in the system. And because I'd done an undergraduate degree in a similar subject, I was lucky because then I could rely on a supervisor from my undergraduate degree to help me understand the process and basically tell me what to do. Mm. And I think also once you've contacted supervisors, if they're kind and if they're going to be a good supervisor, they will help you to apply. Mm-hmm. And I think it's completely fair to have questions. It's extremely complicated if you don't like come from that sort of situation. And if they're going to be any good, then they should basically help you um, to write the application, look over it, give you edits and make sure that you know what you're doing in terms of applying on time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good signal for the supervisor relationship in the future as well. Like it's 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 good. To... Yeah, so true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I guess that's the end of the episode. I hope you found it interesting. We actually so as you know, the podcast is funded by the um, Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership. Just say that so easily now. It's very exciting. <laughs> so they they've actually got some events coming up for to help people within the okay what does the poster say have you ever considered applying for a phd and that's what the kind of um workshops are about so there's one for first generation university students which is on the 14th of november um from 10 a.m to 12 and that's online all of these are online um are you from the a member of the global minority or an ethnic group that's interested in applying for the PhD and that's on the 13th of November um, at between 10 a.m. and 12 and then oh and have you been away from education for some time so someone I guess coming back into academia and that one's on Monday the 13th at 1 till 3 p.m. Um, and I think if you google that that you should Northwest Social Science Doctoral Partnership um, and those event names you should be able to find them. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and as always, if you have your own thoughts on what diversity means in academia, how we could encourage more diverse PhD students to enter academia, please always feel free to email us or message us on our Instagram or on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.